0: welcome to everybody we are really honored tonight to have a very special program that will hopefully be enlightening educational informative surprising and once in a while dive into something funny or in uh, in unforeseen um, because we have a Jewish audience and we know that you like to ask all kinds of good questions so be prepared um, tonight, this uh, organization, this event is sponsored by the Israel Action Committee. I'm David Blumberg, the chair of the Israel Action Committee here at Temple Emmanuel in San Francisco. Uh, we have a number of distinguished uh, committee members here. When you raise your hands, those of you who are committee members who help sponsor and organize this, we'd um, like to thank the Shapiro family for hosting a pre uh, event um, at their home with Malcolm, our guest. And I don't want to take a long time to um, talk about an introduction, but just to say that the Israel Action Committee is open to your ideas for programming. We're looking for interesting speakers. Um, We have an absolute prime one here tonight. Um, We've done a number of events um, of all kinds. We're having a very large uh, Mimunia Festival celebration in April uh, that will be sponsored with Jimena, Jews, Indigenous to the Middle East and North Africa. And my co-chair, Sarah Cohen, is going to be in charge of that event. And it's going to be hundreds of people out in the, center of the courtyard with henna, celebra- henna drawing on your hands and Middle Eastern food and a beautiful uh, Middle Eastern uh, Mamounia celebration. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce our speaker very briefly. Um, Malcolm Honlein is, is one of those few people who is known by his first name to kings, prime ministers, presidents, etc. You know, There are 7.2 billion people on earth, and I can only name a few, Cher, Madonna, that have that kind of Um, potency, but Malcolm is one of them. Um, He has one of the world's most interesting jobs, probably one of the world's most difficult jobs, and probably one of the world's, as he said in his own words, one of the most rewarding jobs. He feels very blessed to have been serving the Jewish community for 50 years in a variety of capacities. Uh, He started out very young as a teenager, very involved in the Soviet Jewry movement, as a leader in the New York area. Uh, When the Jewish Community Relations Council was first formed, he became the leader of that in New York. And for the last 33 years, he has been what I call the ambassador of the Jews to the world, um, the American Jews to the world and to the administration here in the United States, representing an amalgam of 52 organizations, from Hadassah to ZOA to APAC and many others, Reform uh, Movement, are all members of this conference of presidents of major Jewish organizations, whereas he's the, um, uh, been running the organization for many years. This job is not one that most people know about. It's really sort of almost a hidden job because it's very much government to government, often very secret. A lot of the stuff, he can't really talk about what he does, but there are a lot of missions of rescue of Jewish communities where the American Jewish community is asked to help either political lobbying or with money or with other resources to help figure out a solution to a tough problem where there are hostages or all kinds of problems, as you know, that affect Jewish communities around the world. So he has an amazing uh, Rolodex. Again, people call him by name. His professional background is quite distinguished. He has a master's um, and undergraduate degrees in the University of Pennsylvania and Temple, uh, international relations. Um, He's been a scholar. He's taught Middle East diplomacy. He's taught international relations at these universities. He has four honorary doctorates, uh, et cetera. I don't want to take more of his time because he's the star of the show. Um, Let's call Malcolm.
1: Did that all by heart? You know, I think uh, I can hire you as my biographer. You have got it. He knows more about me than I do. I was trying to remember all those things. Well, first of all, it's a pleasure to be here. I see some good friends, uh, Laura and, uh, and Yitz and his wife and others who are here. Um, I haven't been here for many years, not for uh, not wanting to be but because my travels generally take me abroad and not so much within the United States. So it was a special privilege that I flew in from New York this afternoon, and I'm flying back right after this. And only because of David would I do that kind of insane thing. Uh, But he's been a great friend and a supporter and a respected leader. And your community has produced so many. I have to mention Earl Rabb, who was a mentor of mine when I uh, started the JCRC in New York. He was here in San Francisco, and I'm sure many of you remember him, and many others that you have given to be leaders in the national Jewish community. So they told me to talk about the challenges and the problems and what's new and what we should do about it, and domestically and internationally. So I started writing a Sears catalog of the problems that we have. And you know, it's a six-hour flight, so I had a lot of time. Uh, And you will pay the price for that. The truth is that we are living in one of the most complicated times. And as you heard, I've been doing this for many decades. I think this is the most complicated time that I remember. And complicated for a lot of reasons. A lot of the things that we thought had been written off to history are coming back. You know, they tell the story of an old man was on a scooter and came to a red light in Israel, next to a guy driving a Lamborghini, and on the license plate it said, Doc. So the old man said, hey, Doc, that's a beautiful car. He said, yeah, it cost me 250000 He said, how fast does it go? He said, well, in a minute I can get up to 80, in a minute and a half to 120, in two minutes, 200. He said, that's a beautiful car. Can I look inside? And the doc says, well, all right. And he's waiting for the light to change. And the old man squirrels in through the window and he's checking out the whole thing. And the guy says, you know, when the light changes, I'll show him what this car can do. The light turned green and he took off. And he sees the old man behind And all of a sudden, the old man passes him. So he puts the 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 pedal to the floor and he goes faster. And he sees the old man left behind it again. The old man passes him. So he really takes off and he looks back and there's the old man coming up and he smashes into the back of the Lamborghini. The doctor jumps out and goes over to him and says, "Is there anything I can do for you?" He said, "Yes. Could you untie my suspenders from your rearview mirror?" <laughs> and you'll get it later. It's I know it's a three-hour time difference, so it takes time. To... A lot of the things that we thought we left behind in the rearview mirror of history are coming back. A lot of the isms, and primarily anti-Semitism, which we thought after the Holocaust, had at least now no longer been politically correct. And for decades, people would not speak out, even if they, in their hearts, bore this kind of hatred. Today, those restrictions no longer work. They no longer feel bound by it, both by ignorance about the events of 70 years ago, or because today, expressing hatred has become commonplace. So we, as a people, look back. Judaism has a unique unique emphasis on history that no other people has. We look back in order to look forward. We look back to our history, to our forefathers and foremothers, because we learn from them. We learn from their mistakes and their successes. The whole book of Genesis tells us about our forefathers and foremothers, but you don't see them just as heroic figures. We see their frailties because we learn from it. For us, history is about the future. Zechira is the only word, there's no Hebrew word for history. Zechira, which means remembrance. And remembrance is different because remembrance is dynamic. It means that you have to know the causal factors, you have to know the resultant factors. You can't look at it in isolation, and say at that corner at that time, something happened as a New York Times reporter would do. We have to understand, because we have to learn the lessons. We look back in order to learn the lessons to spare future generations those trials and tribulations. You know that uh, the great rabbis taught that no generation is judged in its time. We're not even judged by our children, we're judged by our grandchildren. Because that's when you see come true fruition is the actions you take. We are who we are because of decisions our grandparents made as much as our parents. Our grandchildren will be who they will be because decisions we make as much as their parents. And today, those lessons are more important than ever. In the Torah reading of last week, we read where Pharaoh plots against the Jewish people. In the book of Exodus, in the second chapter, the second portion, it says Pharaoh doesn't say the Jews did anything wrong. He said, hava we have to deal shrewdly with them because maybe they'll grow strong, maybe they'll turn against us, maybe they'll join with the enemies, but he doesn't have one piece of evidence against them but it was enough to mobilize the people to enslave those with whom they had lived for generations and who had done so much, what Joseph did for the people, and, you know, it says, a new king arose who didn't know Joseph. And that is the prototype. We see it in all of our forefathers that Abraham was told you cannot live amongst us as a Jew. Isaac was told you cannot live amongst us and Jacob was told you cannot live. The three forms of anti-Semitism that have plagued us through all the generations, expulsion, annihilation, and discrimination. So we look back to learn the lessons. Winston Churchill once said, the further back you look, the further ahead you will see. Our sages said it a thousand years earlier. And it is so important today, in an age of apathy and indifference, These are the greatest dangers to us. It's not the external enemies, Moses thought. It's not the threats. It's apathy, indifference, and ignorance. Those are the challenges we could not overcome. And unfortunately, they become more and more prevalent in our own community and in our societies. People have no patience for history. They want everything now, peace now, food now, everything immediately. That's not how the world works. You can't communicate in 40 characters or 140 characters when you have such complex issues as the ones I will address today. And young people, therefore, don't get the facts. They react viscerally to things. I always speak to college students and tell them the one thing that drives me crazy is when they say, well, it is what it is. And I tell them, no, it isn't. It is what you make of it. It is what it is means that you've given up on hope. You've given up on any efficacy. You won't make a difference. It is what you make of it says it's your responsibility, but they don't want the responsibility. And so much of our culture and society is geared to taking them away from having that responsibility. And we will pay the price for it. So I will talk about some of the internal and external challenges, but you can't look at them without the context of what is happening today in our society. And you know that the issues have become so much more complex because with globalization, it's not just about economics, it's about politics, that everything is interrelated. Just as a road trader in one country can affect the markets everywhere, what happens in one country politically has a ripple effect and it's interrelated. So you cannot anymore separate one issue from all of the others. Just look at Syria. I de- dare you to anybody to peel that onion and explain to me all the sides, all the parties. And I have been there and I've been involved in it and I've met with Assad for many hours the month before the fighting started there. And believe me, even he couldn't understand all of the factors and certainly not to predict what was going to happen. So we live in an era where You have this interrelationship between all of the issues. So when we wanna talk about any one of the issues, whether related to Israel or anti-Semitism, you can't do it if you don't see it within the context of all of the other things that are taking place. And we live in a society where divisiveness and polarization is growing every day, where we see the model of Europe being enacted here, and that is the loss of the political center, you will not have another Macron, you will not have another Merkel, and you won't have another May. And the same dynamic is here. And I said this 15 years ago at a Herzliya conference, that America will follow the model of, of England, not of France. That like their movement of BDS started amongst the elites, it would start amongst academia and cultural figures and then trickle down. Unlike France, where it always starts from the bottom up. And the, The model of what has happened in Europe today, where we see the rise of extremists, where we see the extreme right and extreme left gaining, and you see the other problems within the societies which I'll talk about. But it is a lesson to us because we are losing the political center in America. When you look at the extremes of both parties, they look identical. They have the same tattoos and the same bandanas. Because when extremes go far enough, they meet. And we have seen that in our own society. And so we have to, from right and left and all parts of the spectrum in between, come together to understand our common responsibilities and our common obligations. If we're going to meet this, you're not going to do it with segments or sectors of society. It has to be everybody. And they cannot afford the price of indifference, of people saying, I don't care. We did a study many years ago, an extensive study, and we paid a fortune for it. Because I was tired of all the polls, which really don't tell you anything except a temperature of the people at one moment and one point of time, what somebody was thinking. But it doesn't tell you the real context. So we studied 3,000 people in depth, Jews and non Jews, every age, every sector. And what we came up with is that the people weren't turning against Israel, that the majority, you have 25% hardcore support, 10% hardcore opposition, but the vast majority of Americans are turning to indifference. Now in political campaigns, somebody who's indifferent opts out, it doesn't matter. We can't afford that when it comes to support for Israel. So we see that indifference and apathy become major challenges for us and for our communities. And the need for all of us to be able to stand up against some of these these challenges and learn the lessons of the past because this is our obligation to our grandchildren now. You know, the Chinese have a curse, may you live in interesting times. I think it's being overdone. We're way beyond interesting times. And another thing I find is that people don't want to hear bad news. Bad news, meaning the truth is not bad. Ignorance is bad. Because if you're informed and you know, then you can react. Ignorance, not knowing, leads to consequences that are devastating. So I think it's very important for us always to have a real knowledge of of what is happening, to be realistic. Jews cannot afford the luxury of not living in the real world at the real time. You know, there was an epigenetic center at Harvard that did extensive study. They spent a million dollars, and the conclusion they came to was the Jews have an extraordinary level of guilt. I could have saved them a million dollars. But it's not true. It's not guilt, it's responsibility. Jews have a unique sense of responsibility for ourselves and for others. The Prime Minister of Japan, you know, the one who thought he was Elvis, when I met with him, we sat down first, I came in and hundreds of reporters, photographers came rushing out and I said, wow, look at this. And then the chief of protocol said, that's not for you, they're here anyway. Until they saw my yarmulke, then they really went crazy. Anyway, we came and we sat down, and he turned to me and he said, why are Jews so influential? I said, because Jews care, and people who care have influence. People who don't care have no influence. And I said, but we don't just care about our own. Who were the first to respond to the tsunami? Who the first planes that you saw with the Star of David landing, even when you're denying that you took aid from Israel? Who were the people that responded in Louisiana? And I gave him all the cases. They asked me, so why did Hitler hate the Jews so much? I said, hate by its nature is irrational. I can give you the reasons they rationalized it with. And I talked about the outcome of the Versailles Treaty and World War II, and I said, but look what he did. He sacrificed his own war aims. I was gonna say your war aims, and thank God I didn't. At, uh, and I said, he, used, he diverted planes, trains, bullets, everything, manpower, even though it meant sabotaging his own front lines just to kill Jews. And it gave me a chance then to talk to him about Iran And frankly, the result was that he asked me what I wanted, and I said, I want you to visit Israel, and he went. And it was uh, quite remarkable. Uh, He was very taken with it, and he, um, the the trade today between Japan and Israel is multiplying every year. Tens of thousands of Japanese are visiting Israel. Businesses are cooperating every day. But one of the results of this is that the only thing that's predictable is that nothing is predictable. And anybody who can tell, says to you that they can tell you what will be in a month from now is lying to you. Nobody knows. Because the things, the change is so rapid, the, the difficulties that we confront, the unknown factors, which only are compounded by the ignorance that we so often uh, encounter, and the, the very tense climate, the aggressiveness that we see, the extremism that is becoming so commonplace, these are all factors that people can't predict, and especially when you have leaders, you can't predict necessarily what their positions will be. And another factor is that you can't believe what you read anymore. You can't believe what you hear. You can't even believe what you see. How many stories have been on the front page of papers, on television, and turn out to be total distortions? The stories about Gaza, telling about a death of a child, showing her and saying she had been killed when she in fact was killed in Syria three, months, uh, three years earlier and how many blatant distortions, misrepresentations about what goes on. And so you could see it and say, I saw it with my own eyes on television, and it has no correlation with reality. Mark Twain once said that if you don't read a newspaper, you're ill-informed. If you read a newspaper, you're misinformed. Well, if it was true then, it's still true today. So I will start off then in the spirit of uh, what I said and to tell you all the good news, Israel today is expanding its relationships all over the world. As you know, the prime minister was in Chad, a a majority Muslim country, his fourth trip to Africa in two years. African countries are opening up embassies. We are going to uh, Kenya and Uganda in a week with the president's conference. We are being welcomed publicly and openly, and we have invitations from most of the countries in Africa to visit. We see the new relationships in the Arab world, in the Gulf in particular, Saudi Arabia, Israel, as you know, the Prime Minister flew back over Sudan with permission of the Sudanese government. We know that you know flights from India are now flying over Saudi Arabia to Israel. They played Hatikvah at the judo games in Qatar and at the, in the UAE championships. You see the not-so-public exchanges that are taking place, but everybody knows about it. It's always a secret, but it's true. We see that the predictions of Israel's isolation, that everybody said Israel will be alone, Israel will not have friends. Today there isn't a country we visit where they don't say, can you get me an invitation to Israel? See at the United Nations when the Prime Minister comes, the 50, 60 applications for meetings from heads of state. He literally does 12, 15 meetings in a day because of the desire of everybody to have relationships with Israel. And I have been in the UAE and I've been in Qatar and I've been in all the Arab countries and Saudi Arabia. And there's a whole different world today where they see that Israel is not the source of instability, it's the hope for stability. As they said to me, it's our only hope against the enemy. They don't trust the West. They don't trust the United States. And for the last 10 years, there has been this feeling that America is withdrawing and America is giving up responsibility, and especially now with the withdrawal of troops from Syria, which sent a very devastating message to many of our allies. And I fear that now with the closing of the last chapter of ISIS territorial hold, we may see the withdrawal of the US troops, and it's not because 2,000 troops determine the outcome, it's because of the message and the presence there has such an important effect, and especially in blocking the Iranians' goal to create the transnational, Shiite, Crescent, through Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, to the Mediterranean. And they boast of controlling four Arab capitals today. Yemen, Iraq, Syria, Lebanon. And unfortunately, it's largely true. So ISIS is not gone away, by the way. ISIS will regroup as a guerrilla operation. They are still present in many places of the world. And one of the issues that very few people talk about is that there were tens of thousands of ISIS fighters from every country, including the United States. They did not disappear. They hold passports. They are going to come back. France alone, the head of the intelligence in France, the head of the the equivalent of the CIA and FBI, said to me, there are more than 2,000. It takes 10 men to monitor any one of them. I don't have 20,000 guys to assign to this. And he told me that they were watching the guys who carried out the attack on Charlie Hebdo and the kosher supermarket until the Friday before the attack, and then he had to switch them to somebody else. The MI5 puts half of its budget in Britain just on monitoring the foreign fighters coming back. There are trials every month in America against Islamists here for carrying out attacks. You hardly read about it; nobody talks about it, but it's a reality. And by the way, you can't call them terrorists. They're militants. Don't don't use the word terrorists anymore. It's It's not politically correct. But that alone tells you the message. That people, if you can't name it and you can't identify it, you can't fight it. And Europe is showing the example that they refused for many years. And now it's too late. I'm telling you there's no future for the Jewish communities in Europe, and I know they hate to hear it, and I've told it to them for 15 years. Now they come back and say the exact same thing, and yesterday in a conference in Europe, in Belgium, Jewish leaders of Europe got up and said, there's no future. It's very bleak, because the numbers are overwhelming. You can argue with everything, but you can't argue with demographics. And when Jews are outnumbered 20 to 1 and 15 to 1 and 10 to 1 in every European country by Muslims, when you have the influx, when they are 75% of them under 25, Europeans are on average age 140. The birth rate amongst Europeans is 1.9, replacement is 2.1, amongst Muslims it's 4.4. And this is not because this is not anti-Muslim and anti-Islam. As you see, I travel to all the Muslim countries. I build ties between the United States and Muslim countries. I want you to just face the realities of what we're looking at, and what we have to confront. So there is tremendous good news. We see the isolation. We see the startup nation continuing. Everybody said it would run out after a year or two or, or two years. It's not true. We see that it is continuing almost unabated. We see that Israel is energy independent, water independent, tourism over four million, all records. We see the connections that are now being built in the Mediterranean Alliance, which we actually started 10 years ago and is now burgeoning. We see the ties that so many Muslim countries are establishing, non-Arab Muslim countries. We see the joint exercise between the United States and Israel, between Israel and Greece and Cyprus, between European countries with Israel, even some of those who vote against us in the United Nations But everybody wants to have a relationship with Israel. Israel is amongst the five most educated populations in the world and voted the 11th happiest people in the world. Who would have thunk? Israelis would admit to being happy. But it's a reflection of a reality of a strong economy growing faster than almost any economy. And we see that Congress of the United States, despite the challenges which I will discuss, remains stronger than ever in support of Israel on both sides of the aisle, and the United States-Israel alliance is strong and happy. And in many, many areas, way beyond just the military and intelligence exchange every day in agriculture, in joint research development, science and missile technology, launching missiles, the United States and Israel are working together. So I could stop here and just say the picture's good. But you would be very disappointed, I know. And we cannot live in a world of illusions. You know what? America thought it could. But even the greatest power in the world can't. You've got to deal with reality, and you've got to be willing to admit, admit mistakes and admit challenges. We cannot allow the ignorance and indifference to pervade the decision-making. We have to stop all this partisanship. It doesn't mean that you can't have differences. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't have aggressive... Advocacy, I believe we should, and we shouldn't all be you know, ticky-tack in one view. Unity is not homogeneity. Unity means recognizing that what we have in common far outweighs our differences. For us as Jews, there was only one precondition to every great miracle that happened to us. Only one. From the time we stood at Mount Sinai as one people with one heart, to the rescue of Russian Jews and Ethiopian Jews and Syrian Jews and Iraqi Jews and Iranian Jews, things that everybody thought was impossible. When I came to New York to head the Soviet Jew, people said, you're crazy, you're giving up teaching at Penn and all the other stuff. Jews will never be free. Now a million plus Jews later, and all of these other communities that have been written off to Jewish history, have all come home. We've seen the prophetic vision of the ingathering of the exiles. How many of us appreciate the miracles that we have seen? The truth is that the difference from 70 years ago is not that the world has changed. 70 years ago, they said they didn't know. It was a lie. They didn't want to know. We know from the archives that are being opened every day that they knew every day how many Jews were being killed because they broke the Nazi codes. But they didn't want the Nazis to know, so they didn't reveal the Jews. They didn't tell them before Operation Reinhardt, when they knew months before, 2,224,000 Jews killed in a few weeks in Sobibor, Lublin, other camps. But they didn't want the Nazis to know. And I asked the British Prime Minister once, why didn't you reveal it at Nuremberg? Why did you hold the secret for 60 years? Because they wanted to keep the lie alive. It wasn't that they didn't know, they didn't want to know. And unfortunately, even today, they don't want to know the reality when it comes to a lot of the challenges and the anti-Semitism, the blatant anti-Semitism that we see. They're willing to join in the bias at the United Nations and vote against Israel. 120 countries now saying Israel should withdraw from from the Golan Heights. You might as well just say, put a noose around your neck. And that's not about what the future will be or anything, but it's irrational for the countries to vote that way. And you look at the resolutions. The World Health Organization condemned one organization this year, one, the one country that took 6,000 refugees from. Going in at night into Syria, saving children, saving adults. I was there. I went three o'clock in the morning in the freezing cold with the soldiers. You can't imagine what they did every single night. Did anybody say you should get a Nobel Prize? Did anybody congratulate them? And they didn't do it for that. They did it. And as I asked one of the commanders when I saw an ambulance drive of people they had healed, these four hulking guys going out, and I said, Aren't you worried that one day they're going to turn against you? And he said, Most likely they will but that's what Jews do. Cost them hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars. Nobody offered to compensate them for it. You know that every day hundreds of people come from the West Bank into Israel. There's an organization called Road to Recovery where 500 Israelis volunteer and go every day, despite the work, take off to drive them from the border to hospitals and back. But on the other side, the Palestinian Authority charges them, unless they're members of the hierarchy, in order to be able to get online to get treated. Thousands come from Gaza to be treated in Israeli hospitals for free. Even the members of Khania and the Hamas leadership's own family. Even his mother-in-law was there recently. I don't know what he wanted to happen to her there, but he sent to her anyway. So they join in the United Nations in votes that they know are absurd, and they say to us that they are absurd. UNESCO votes over two years, and some of you know that I warned about it and warned about it, yet Others and nobody wanted to hear it, even Israelis didn't listen to it. And I said, This is a pattern, you can't see it. You see that they started to change the names of the most sacred places of ours. UNESCO voting overwhelmingly, that the Western Wall is no longer it shouldn't be the Western Wall, it's Western Wall hyphen Al Barak's wall. Al Barak being Muhammad's horse who ascended after him after his death, even though Muhammad never visited Israel in his lifetime. They changed the name of the Cave of the Patriarchs, made it a mosque, the same with Jeru, uh, Rachel's tomb, which for 3,000 years was called Kutab Rachel in every Muslim and Arabic document. And the Temple Mount is the Haram Sharif. And then they waited a year and voted again and removed the Judeo-Christian names. 3,800 years of Jewish history eradicated, 2,000 years of Christian history eradicated. And I asked some of the people who voted for it, the French, Ambassador, I said, how could you vote for this? What are you going to tell your grandchild when they're barred entry? Because the United Nations said you have no right to be there. He looked at me and he said, you know, I have to think about that. I said, you should have thought about it before you voted. But you know, why would they do that? Why would they invest all this energy? They have the Arab Spring. You have every single Arab country is at war with another Arab country today. And that's all they have to worry about is changing, creating a fiction, denying history. Because every step they take to deny our history, when Arafat did the destruction on the Temple Mount, 400 tons taken off, and all through it you found every single discovery proves the Jewish history. All of the discoveries that have been made in the light railroad, finding the names of the kings on, and prophets on the seals. You can't argue with a rock that has a carving of a menorah that somebody threw into the ground or the weight with the name in Hebrew as it is in the Bible, there isn't one of all the thousands of discoveries that contradicts the Bible and doesn't underscore Jewish history there. So God is giving the answer to UNESCO. But you know why they do it? Because they get it more than we do. That if you take away our past, you take away our future. That if you cut off our roots, what right do we have to be there? And if you tell young people, young Jews, you have no history, you have no identity, And is it any wonder that they wander off and they look for other ways and they feel disaffected and angry about what is happening? There is a challenge that I want to talk about and I know people, many, are uncomfortable about it. But it's a reality we have to confront. The events in Pittsburgh ended the age of innocence for American Jews. You can't say anymore, we didn't know. Just as Kristallnacht, whose 80th anniversary we commemorate this year, was the age of the end of the age of denial for Germans, Pittsburgh was the end of the age of innocence for us. It isn't because it was worse. Well, it was worse than any other attack, but it's because it was a watershed, to waken people. And We don't judge a society because they have anti-Semites or haters. You judge a society by how do those in authority respond to hate? How do those in power? Do they stoke the fires? Do they exploit hatred and, and rivalries between communities and tensions? Or do they really address it? Pittsburgh put us on notice, and now we look to the lessons from Europe to learn from it, to see how did they handle it, what mistakes did they make. We work very closely with the communities in Europe, and as bleak as their future is, there is still much that we can learn. The poll that came out yesterday shows that 40% of European Jews are talking about leaving, and it's the young, which means that the birth rate will continue to drop and that the communities will continue to shrivel. They're not gonna disappear, and we don't want them to disappear. I'm just telling you reality. 10% of the Jews of Paris moved last year. It leads to another area, and most out and The out-migration in every country in Europe is growing, and if Corbyn gets elected, 45% of British Jews said they will leave. Corbyn should be a message to us, to look at what happened in Europe. How did it happen? Everybody says they can't believe it. They don't know how this could have happened. Well, we know that there are a lot of contributors to it. It affects every sector in our society. We see it in business with the BDS. We see companies like Airbnb joining the boycott of of, uh, the territories. And it's not whether they do those 100 units. It's because it sets a precedent that will have no limit. Who suffers when they do that? Israel doesn't suffer. Israel's economy has not been hurt by BDS. The Palestinians suffer. The mayor of Nablus called me at two o'clock in the morning My wife said to me, you know, there's a voice in this, I don't know, can't he understand what he's saying. It was Mayor Mnablos, and he was yelling at me, stop BDS. I said, you stop BDS. It's the Palestinian Authority that gave birth to it and continues to support it. We have a study that's going to come out this week that shows European countries gave $5.6 million in the last two years to BDS organizations. We know that UN agencies are funding it, as well as a lot of individuals. We are seeing the modern-day blood libels. These are no different. And don't be fooled by the fact that they say, we are only doing this against certain Jews. This is against the collective Jew, the state of Israel. Because it's still not right to say, I hate Jews. But you can say, I hate Zionists, and I hate Israel. But everybody should know they mean you. Read between the lines. Now read the lines, because it's more and more explicit. They express the anti-Semitism. They go on our campuses and say the most hateful thing. They draw swastikas on unprecedented numbers. They express it from the extreme right and the extreme left. We are seeing in all the sectors that the expression of hate against Jews has become increasingly acceptable. And don't let the and say that it's young people. That tells you what the next generation is going to believe. So we have a real challenge in trying to address these blood libels. Remember what the lesson of Pharaoh was that we can't let them just get away with it. If you don't stand up, if you don't exercise this cancer, it metastasizes and grows. In Europe, they refuse to face it. For years, I debated the head of the French Jewish community at the French embassy every year, and every year they would deny and deny, and now he says everything that I said all those years. Because no more is it credible to deny it. And we in America, it's not a comparable situation. You know, the big lie worked for Hitler, and it still works today when it comes to Jews. We see how the media distorts and misrepresents. That story in the New York Times, that article on on Martin Luther King Day, completely distorting the facts and the realities on the ground. It doesn't mean that Israel does everything right. Believe me, Israel can be criticized. It doesn't make you an anti-Semite or else 99% of Israelis would be anti-Semites. But when you demonize, BDS doesn't say, I'll accept Israel in the 67 lines. Ask them, ask them if they'll accept it in the 47 lines. They say no because they don't accept Israel's right to exist. They don't accept the right that Jews have the right to self-determination that every other people. And then it extends and extends, and they went go after kosher products now. Now they'll go after circumcision and kosher slaughter in Europe. You have legislation in Flanders and other places already outlawing it. Those are always the first indicators, because they're the most visible thing, targets that they can attack. It's the demonization of Israel. This is the challenge to us. Martin Luther King once said, it's not gonna be the attacks of our enemies, but the silence of our friends. And that's what we have to look at today. Where are the elites? They're being poisoned in campuses, in academia, in cultural venues. We see it more and more expressed in the movies and in television. And of course, the, the accelerator here is the internet where there are tens and tens of thousands of anti-Semitic sites. I don't know if any of you have ever gone into the deep, into dark Internet. I was taken there by one of the big firms, one of the most uh, advanced firms. And frankly, what I saw, I could not sleep for a week. Of the vile anti-Semitism, many of them Iranian-based sites, but you can't tell them from Iran until you go really down But the lesson of history is that it's we who set the bar for the anti-Semites. It's not what they do, it's what we do. If we let them get away with it, they keep expanding. If we stand up against it, then we can stop it. But we have to act as a unified voice and you will find that there are many non-Jews who will stand with us if we're there, like they did on Soviet Jewry. We didn't save Soviet Jews, Americans of every stripe, but because we were there, they were there. And the same thing will be true if they don't see us standing up and speaking out on these issues. And not just anti-Semitism, racism, bigotry against any people because there are no boundaries and there are no borders. Once it's allowed to happen, it affects everybody and affects everybody. There are no easy cures. But there are ways, things that we can do. And one of the things is we have to declare zero tolerance for intolerance. And I don't care where it comes from, from the highest level, the lowest levels, whether it's members of Congress, whether it's people on the left or people on the right, we have to say we will not be quiet. We will not be silent in the face of it. We will challenge it. We will not make the mistakes. If we believe never again is a pledge that this generation takes, it means that we will not be silent. Not when we're the victims and and not when others are the victims. That's why we're the community that spoke up for the Yazidis. We spoke up for the Copts. We spoke up for the Kurds, because we know that if a world that will tolerate for them will tolerate it for us. Even though I couldn't get the Kurds and the Muslims and others to speak out for their own community, so we had to create demonstrations and their fake names, but we couldn't be silent in the face of it. All the more so when it comes to our own community. And it's often a fine line to walk. People jumped on HSBC when they made the announcement that they were going to withdraw from Elbit. It was not BDS. I called the head of HSBC. I spoke to the head of Elbit. And it's only because they have a policy about certain arms manufacturing. And Elbit was never subject to it till they bought IMI, Israel Military Industries, which does produce these things. In the same way Raytheon and Lockheed Martin and everybody else is subject to the same rules. They didn't close their banks in Israel. They didn't do anything else. But BDS, brilliantly, put out a statement, took credit for it, and it had nothing to do with them. So I warned everybody not to react. You've got to know when to react. We've got to save our muscles and use it in the right way. But we have to make it clear, no excuses, no exceptions. If you stand with Farrakhan, you'll be held to account for that. If you stand with a David Duke, you're going to be held to account for it. If you don't hold them to these things, then you make it acceptable. And it's we who lower the bar. We keep lowering, we say, it, we can live with it, we can live with it. It's what happened in the 30s in Germany. They said, no, how much more? The River, the River Trop will never let him do it. We won't, we can live with it. They cut him off from education, they cut him off from social intercourse, they cut him off from work. And they kept saying, we can live with it, they can't possibly do these things. It's human nature. I understand the defense mechanisms. But learning the lessons of the past tell us that we're not going to stand up and be silent in the face of these blood libels. and we have to hold those who have responsibility to account and that starts with the police and demand that they account. We have to have hotlines as we are establishing for college students in order to give them an ability to report and to make sure that the communities, you, stand with the students. You know we have a lawsuit against San Francisco State University which has been a hotbed where Jewish speakers, pro-Israel speakers were barred from speaking in the administration and I just learned tonight that he's not there, uh, President Wong, but we have a non-Jewish law firm that has invested $2.8 million in this case already. Because they understand the significance that when the pro-Israel speaker, when Jewish students' rights are being violated, we have 400 reporters, uh, attorneys under the Lawfare Project all over the country, half of them non-Jews, volunteering their time to defend the rights of Jewish students. Yesterday we had a meeting of 25 of the organizations fighting BDS in our office. And we are planning now to do some really massive things and a major conference uh, next month uh, in March. If you would have sat through any one of the reports about the sharp increase in blatant anti Semitism and physical assaults against students on our university campuses. Jewish students who will not wear a yarmulke or a Star of David, who can't wear their fraternity or sorority sweaters on campuses. Campuses like NYU and Columbia have become so hostile. Jewish students told you cannot sit in that classroom because the Arab students feel threatened by your presence. And the university backs them. So we have to mobilize and stand against those who who have influence, donors, parents, community leaders, political leaders, that if an administration of a university won't stand and defend the rights of Jewish students, we'll make sure they do. That no Jewish student should have to be afraid. I just heard tonight of a Jewish student who had to transfer from their university back to here because they felt so threatened there. And this is a major liberal college on the East Coast. Every single day, my office gets reports of this. There isn't a single day and they are affected by the climate and society as a whole that there just seems to be a free license whether it's the yellow vests in in france who have turned against the jews now and turned those demonstrations we had nothing to do with the jews it is a pandemic and it spreads across borders and across oceans and we are working collectively with european communities to have a common defense and we are going to hopefully do things that will bring more and more attention to this in the coming months Look what happened with the women's marches. And thank God there were courageous women who stood up against it. And uh, Wasserman Schultz and others who were willing to stand up, and the Zionist organization, and every woman here who identifies with it should, I, should join them. And amazing women, hundreds and hundreds of Jewish and non-Jewish women signed up with Zionists, when after they were barred, Jews were barred from the Chicago march. And now they have a presence, and they organized an alternative demonstration in New York, and they've alternative demonstrations in many other places. But the leadership, Mallory, even today made blatantly anti-Semitic statements. It can't be tolerated. We can't excuse it. You can't overlook it. Because thousands of young women see that and identify with it and adopt it. And we see it in many of the minority communities, we see it in majority communities. Security has to become a priority in every community, in every institution. It becomes a stepchild, no more. We have an obligation to see to it that physical security of our institutions and of our communities is going to be secure. And you know, we created the SCAN together with the federations, the Secure Community Network. They are overwhelmed by reports. And, and we're setting up a hotline, as I told you, for, for students, but also for others to be able to report and to be able to get the actual figures because the numbers we talk about, there were 15 attacks in the last four months, uh, two months in Brooklyn alone, physical assaults against Jews. There are hundreds and hundreds, It's a 30, 40% increase every year. And most attacks are not even reported. So anti-Semitism is a challenge for this generation. And if we're not gonna be willing to face up to it, and if we aren't willing to put aside the differences over things that are relatively min- minor, it's why in the, when we sit at the Seder, we say in every generation, behold our v'dar, Moleno doesn't use the past tense, it uses the present tense. In every generation they arise to remind us that the enemies are the same and if we don't learn the lessons, if we don't stand against it, then we pay the price for it. I wanted to spend a few minutes, if it's okay, on the Middle East because what you see happening in the Middle East is not what's happening. If you don't understand that what you're seeing is a thousand-year-old battle between Shiites and Sunnis, you're not going to understand what's happening. Everybody talked about an Arab Spring. There never was an Arab Spring. It wasn't even an Arab winter. It had nothing to do with the things that everybody said. I was in Egypt a week after the demonstration. I was in Tahrir Square. There wasn't one sign against Israel, a lot against America, but it wasn't about democracy. It was about the fact that 50% of the people make $2 a day. It was about the fact that price of food went up 100%, Fuel. Oil, sugar, wheat, the basics. You remember how it all started? When a guy immolated himself over his cart in Tunisia because the government taxed it or tried to take it away. So it was about economics. Secondly, it was about failed states. Syria is not a real country. Syria was created, as you know, by the Europeans. But there never was a Syria. Nobody has a Syrian identity. They're Alawites, they're Shiites, they're Sunnis, they're Catholics, they're Jews, they're Kurds. They're everything but Syrians. These are tribal societies. Libya is not a country, it's 147 tribes. Don't even speak the same languages everywhere. You need a dictator because nobody else can hold these things together. And as bad as Assad was, I don't know that there's a better alternative. And he probably, and I know what he feels about it because I discussed Iran with him. Egypt withstood it because Egypt's a real country. It has a history and identity. The Egyptian army could serve as that unifying force. Morocco is a real country with a real history. So this was about failed states and that the, what they did in the 1920s in Sykes-Picot came home to roost when all these fake identities were falling apart when put to the test. And third, it was about the communications revolution. The governments could no longer subdue the exchange of information and the communication that it had with others. Other factors as well, which I won't go into, but understand that this is a battle in the Middle East for four empires. The Ottoman Empire that Erdogan talks about, means it. He wants to recreate the Ottoman Empire. You know that he has army bases and military bases in Syria, Qatar, Afghanistan, Somalia, Sudan. What the hell is he doing in Sudan and Somalia? So far away, it has no interest because the Ottoman Empire had a base there. He wants to be the If You know how I know? Because he told me. I meet with him three or four times a year. And in the confines of this room, and I know you won't repeat it, he's crazy. <laughs> I went to him and talked to him about trying to stop Hamas, which he supported from building the tunnels to Israel. And he said to me, look, you don't understand the problem. He said, you know why they build the tunnels? Because there are no roads in Gaza. I said, Mr. President, I've been to Gaza. You've been in Gaza. There are roads in Gaza. He said, no, there are no roads, and they have tomatoes. And they can't get the tomatoes out because there are no roads. They have to build the tunnels. I said, but Mr. President, nobody's smuggling anything. Those tunnels except terrorism. You could say the tunnels to Egypt were used for it. Forty minutes later, the roads in Gaza, are the, there are no roads in Gaza. And the truth is, when I ask him for things from the Jewish community, for the community there and stuff, I get it. And he doesn't come to America without calling and asking for a meeting, even though every meeting we end up in a fight. And he said to me one point when I asked him, Why are you supporting the riots on the Temple Mount? You know that there's nothing more, you know it's not true that Temple, uh, Al Aqsa is under siege at Israel. They're not doing any of those things. And he said to me, Because you can't be a caliph if you don't have a Jerusalem. He's building 17,000 mosques all over the world. I asked the president of Azerbaijan. I was sitting in his living room with him, and I said, do you, do you see these Turkish mosques? And he looked out of his living room window and said, you see that? You see that? You see that? All new tur- Turkish mosques, and I can't do anything about it. And every Friday, Erdogan sends all of them a message what they're allowed to preach about. And it's a Muslim Brotherhood message. He is Muslim Brotherhood. And unfortunately, our president and President Obama, he was the foreign leader Obama spoke to most in the first two years, until he realized what he was dealing with. And President Trump, I don't think knows for sure, hasn't gotten it yet about who he is, but thank God Bolton and others there do know, he's a dangerous guy. And I'm telling you in the confines of this room, he's more dangerous than Iran in the long run. He's killed more people. He imprisoned 100,000 people. He wiped out his judiciary, his military, his, his uh, media. When I met with MBS from Saudi Arabia before the Khashoggi affair, and he told me, look, there are two threads, the Islamists and Iran. And I said, if you don't see the bottom line of, the tr- of that triangle as Turkey, you're never going to be secure. And then he came here, and he spoke about the three, tri- three challenges. Iran wants to rebuild the Persian Empire. And they have accomplished things that the Persian Empire didn't get to the Mediterranean Sea. They have. But you know what they're doing all across Asia. You know that they have 50,000 agents in South America. They just put ships on on the American lanes outside of Venezuela up to the United States. And hopefully they overthrow the government of Venezuela will go through. That will be a critical development because that is the base of their operations. But they have 50,000 people in South America, documented, working in Hezbollah training camps, and spreading their message and seeking to undermine because they want to attack the United States not from 8,000 miles away, but at our away. They're all over Africa, as are the Turks, and they're competing. And my hope is that not too distant future, the two of them will go to war and both will win, and we will have a lot less problems in the region. But if you take Iran out of the equation, Hamas isn't Hamas, Hezbollah isn't Hezbollah. We know now this past year, they spent $1 billion supporting terrorism. So all the talk that they would moderate, and we give them money, and we have to control them, and we support them, the sanctions are the best thing because that is really bringing a message, and the Iranian people are ready to make the sacrifice. You know that their economy is in ruins. Forty percent of young Turks, young Iranians, are unemployed, and they say, "Bring on the sanctions," because they want to get rid of that regime. Half the country is in a drought. The currency is worth one percent of what it was worth a year and a half ago. But Iran continues to spend on its military, on everything else, including its nuclear program, and there's plenty of evidence of it. And the people pay the price. Turkey's currency is about 10% of its previous value. But the people in Turkey also willing to challenge. And now you see internal challenges rising. You know that in Iran last year, there were 6,000 demonstrations against the government. You didn't read about it in the papers. Nobody covers it. 6,000 demonstrations. That's the way you bring down the government of Iran. Don't got a new use military. If we would support the people, instead of saying, we don't get involved in internal fights, we could bring it down. And now Iran is trying to bring the battle to the Golan. They're trying to build bases near the Golan, and be able to do overnight raids. They are still creating their presence, and Israel's actions are essential to stop this drive for hegemony in the region and to stop their ability to import the weapons, and especially the precision-guided missiles. There are 150,000 missiles in the hands of Hezbollah. You know that Nasrallah, the head of Hezbollah's first title, is not leader of Hezbollah. It's as the representative of the supreme leader, meaning Iran. And every Arab leader says to us, only Israel can help us. And if we don't stand up against Iran, none of these countries will survive not Egypt, not Morocco, not Saudi Arabia, not the UAE, not Jordan, which is a a primary target for them today. And we have to have a common approach that says we're not gonna tolerate it. Israel's war in the north is growing. They've already uncovered 11 tunnels. Six of them were destroyed. The other five haven't broken through yet, so they haven't gone after them. But General Soleimani was in Syria today. He is the head of the Iran Revolutionary Guard that's in charge of this. That's why you saw the air raids today. They are targeting Israel's border, and they will keep driving as long as they can to get there. That is a very brief overview. But to show how little the world cares, 250 million Christians are suffering today persecution in the Middle East, and nobody cares. The Copts face persecution, the Kurds face persecutions, the Yazidis, and so many others, and the world doesn't care. So it's no wonder that they don't care about the Jews. They did not learn the lessons of 70 years ago. They may pay lip service to it. Well, I will tell you, I'm tired of the memorials to dead Jews. I don't want any more. I don't want the crocodile tears. I want them to stand up for a living state of Israel, a vibrant state of Israel, and living Jewish people. No more excuses, no more patience with them, no more telling them that we're willing to look the other way, no more, ability on their part to find excuses and covers for their hatred. We're going to hold UNESCO to account. We're going to stand up against those who discriminate against Jews and against Israel. I understand the problems with a lot of Israel's policies. We have to sensitize people on both sides. We have to reach in before we reach out. We have to reach into each other. We have to start educating our youth. Our kids don't know. And when they go to campus, they're vulnerable because they don't know how to answer a professor or others who challenge them. And so they become vulnerable to it. You know, the Catholic Church says, give me a kid till he's six years old, you can have him the rest of their lives. We need to educate children from kindergarten on. We have to invest in their education. If they can't afford it, we have to make sure that no Jewish child is denied the opportunity. We have to make sure that we give everybody an opportunity to give expression. We have to have a smorgasbord approach to Jewish life, which means that everybody should find something that they identify with and be able to come in and be part of it. We may not like it all, we may not agree with it all, but it doesn't matter. Whatever we have, cannot afford to lose anyone. We need to bring everybody in, have everybody find a role, and find a place for themselves. We have to increase tourism to Israel. The answer to BDS is to take the D out of it and tell everybody what it really is. It's imperative for us to buy Israeli products, to go there, to make your voices heard. and If there are things you don't like, let them know. But remember that your words count. People who have no power can say whatever they want. People who have power have to be careful, have a sense of responsibility. In World War II, Abba even said Jews had influence in places and power in none. The change from World War II to today is not that the world has changed. It's not a more caring place. There isn't less indifference and apathy when it comes to our suffering. The difference is today is that Jews have power. And I know Jews are not comfortable when I say it. But you know what? It doesn't matter what you think. The world says you have power. And if they say it, then you have it. If the world says you're weak, you're weak. All the articles attacking us, I'm not embarrassed by it and say, oh, Jews dictate, Jews are powerful. Jews. You know what? They know what to do with weak Jews. Strong Jews make them crazy. I do briefings for Arabs, leaders and Arabs who come to visit the United States, for the State Department and others, and they come in and they say, oh, look, we know you control the media, you control the banks. And I said, that's half the story. You don't know all the rest. Because they know what to do with weak Jews. But in seriousness, Jewish power is a gift from God, and it's like a muscle. If you exercise it right, you build it up. If you abuse it, you destroy it. So you have to be careful. We can't scream at everything. You can't take off every enemy. You have to know, hold your shots, and know when to do it and when not to do it. But most of all, we can't use it against one another. We have to stand together. And when there are differences, we can find ways of giving expression to them with respect and civility and responsibility. We can accomplish everything. You know, when Noah was building the ark, And he put those planks in to carry hippopotami and elephants and everything. He knew that the planks couldn't support it. It was a miracle. So if he already did the miracle, why didn't God just build the ark for him? Why didn't he make him do it? The answer is God wants us to do our part. He'll take care of the miracles. The difference from 70 years ago, which was an age of terror for Jews, is that we live in the age of miracles of Jews. Look how much we have that our grandparents would have given everything to see one, Jerusalem under the Jewish sovereignty, to see Israel, a booming economy, the startup nation, to see the Africans and the Asians and everybody flocking. 150,000 Chinese will visit Israel this year, 100,000 Indians. They're doubling the number of flights from these countries, Japan, all over. We're seeing the miracles, the ingathering of the exiles and the opportunities. But the miracles only continue if we prove ourselves worthy of them. That's why we look back to get the context and the perspective to understand our responsibility now. And everybody has a collective responsibility for every Jewish child. You know, when we were the first people to have a responsibility placed on the community for the education of every child, poor and rich. The Romans, the Greeks only held it for the elites. And we said it's the first priority of a community is to build a school even before a synagogue. So we have to make sure that every Jewish child has a chance for an education, and it's not enough when they're 18 for birthright, and to send them for two weeks to Israel and think that that's gonna save them. It's birthright is very important, and I support it fully, but we gotta educate them from their youth and give them the opportunity to answer the questions, to show that we're really gonna stand up against the anti-Semites. The Jewish students are gonna know they're not alone. We know that the opportunities are there for all of us. We have to think that just as we judge a generation of 70 years ago and ask what did they do, our grandchildren are going to ask us what did we do. We better have good answers. The answer will be what we do today. How many of us stand up and act to make sure that we will make it a better world for them? Everybody can change the world. Everybody. Every one of you. Not in the same way. You know, they say the only thing two Jews can agree upon is what a third should give. I don't think you can tell anybody what they should give or what they should do. It has to come from your heart. But when you look at your children and grandchildren, what is your obligation to them and to your grandparents? Because you will be judged for it. Every one of us, no matter what position you're in, you can all do something, whether it's inviting a congressman, writing to people, making your voice heard, writing an op-ed, so many things that can be done to help bring our community together, to make our voices heard. When Moses went to Pharaoh, he, the Pharaoh said, you can go with the elite, go, the one percenters. And he said, no, we go with our children first and then the elderly. That has been our motto throughout all of Jewish history, that we understand that the obligation is to the future, that all of us have a responsibility to understand our, our responsibility, the past and the future. Each of us makes that difference. I want to tell you one story quickly about one man, and you're sitting here, remind me. Ron Lauder and I went to, in 1988 to, to East Europe, and he had a vision about what could be done for East European Jewry. Laura and I sit on the foundation that implements that vision today. And tens and tens of thousands of Jewish lives were saved, were brought back to our people, with the educational institutions, with other things. I didn't see it, he did. And I can give you 100 examples of individuals, young people, older people, who understood the responsibility and all for standing against the masses. And even if it's only one life that you make a difference, it's like saving the world. First, you have to have peace within before you can have peace without. We have to be strong within in order to be strong without. So all of the things that we've seen and I discussed are just warnings to us. They're alerts. We're sounding those alerts in order for us to know how to properly respond. So then when your grandchildren turn to you, they will be able to praise you and thank you for making it a better world for them. Okay.
0: Malcolm, can they agree to take some questions? Some answers. There are no stupid questions, but there are only going to be respectful questions here, so please keep that in mind. We do have security, so make, your, make yourselves at home asking any questions you want. If you start attacking, I hide behind Respectful. Him. We'll start with Jeff Saperstein, and then Malcolm, you can call on anybody you like.
1: I don't like any.
2: life, uh, israeli culture, israeli food, israeli style. I think when we're talking about threats, the, one of the biggest threats is the, uh, is the fact that so many American Jews do not know Israelis as people, they know Israel as a concept. And any of us who have been engaged with Israel, who visit Israel, who learn Hebrew, who have been educated, who feel a commitment to the people. No matter what UNESCO does, we are in solidarity and we're secure. So you've alluded to the fact that every Jewish child should have some basis. It could be camp. It could be all kinds of things. We've been talking about this for 50 years. And by the way, this community loves to do surveys every 10 years to discover how many disaffected people we have. And we still don't have. this kind of infusion of Israeliness—the fact that Israel is so strong and vibrant, and the whole world is looking at Israel—you know better than I do. Only 10% of Jews have actually visited Israel. You know, 22% of the tourists are are, are Jewish, but they're repeats. So, where do you see the reimagining of Zionism? Not that we're being—that we should be defined by others, but how can we define ourselves with? Audacity, with um, authenticity, with experience, so that young people, not only Jews but Gentiles, feel this attachment to Israel because the Israelis deserve it. And we become better Jews when we have more of Israel in our lives. Um, So I'll just stop there. Obviously, the learning of Hebrew is critical, and the fact that our education system, Jewish education systems, doesn't do it is, I think, a, a, an enormous shanda.
1: Okay. I'll take a few and, and answer. Okay. Anybody else? Everybody gets courageous after I say we stop the questions. I know, so.
3: My wife and I attended the APAC conference last year, and we went to a seminar of Jewish uh, Congress. There was one Republican, actually. and There
1: is only one Congress.
3: There was, Congress. was one Congress. And I asked the question, how do you decide to allocate resources, you know, spending $100 million on the latest fighter versus vaccinating 2,000 children? And none of them would give me a straight answer. So the question I'm asking you is, how do we keep Congress engaged when they get asked questions like that and finally decide, you know, it's more important to vaccinate 2,000 American children than buy Israel uh, the latest bomber? Thank you. Keep going. I'm
1: not going to answer them,
4: just to take the questions. Hi. um, When I was young, the going theory and the big fear was that uh, the American Jewish community was going to disappear because of assimilation and intermarriage. And it's a long time from then. What's really happening? Where is it going? Are we going to disappear or is something else going to happen?
3: Third question, I'd be interested in knowing, since you said we can't believe what we read or hear, what are the best resources for us to get good information? Good question.
0: You sure? Just a, just a quick one, what, what, is the, what is sort of the positive case of the end game with Iran in the, assuming the sanctions work and the Europeans come
5: along? The first time I was to Israel was uh, 1970, and um, the second time was 2008. Quite a change, because um, I see the difference between separating women and, and men at the wall. Uh, but what I hear about Israel here disturbs me a lot on TV or radio cutting off our our speech, our ability to speak, and that to hear us um, is very disturbing to me. I'm not pointing it out to you, so don't get me wrong, but um, we really need to to educate ourselves and to speak up whenever you hear anti-Semitism going on. When I was in sixth grade, or even before that, um, I was called a dirty Jew on the playground. But in sixth grade, there was some girl that I really didn't know uh, brought the teacher with her, and she asked me, what nationality are you? American. No, what nationality are you? American. No, you're Jewish. So, you know, there's so much hate here. Yes. It's a beautiful statement. We've got to keep
0: the good questions. We no, I get the it. it's
1: no, a good point.
3: I'm going to try to tie together a couple of points you made and then ask the question and then as you talked about we need to understand the past to be able to impact the future and the hollowing out of the American political center so and you've talked about the very difficult situation in the college and universities today which are basically making it so hostile for Jewish and Israeli youth that they have to hide their identities and may permanently lose that identity. Could you tell us? what happened in academia, such that we arrived at the position today, which is essentially lobotomizing the intellect and the ability for rational thought of students and accordingly, the American society. It looks very grim, and it's already pushed its way down on the high school level. We had to take our daughter out of the San Francisco public school system here because the prospect of going into the indoctrination of the public school system was too terrifying.
4: sorry to be a latecomer. I would like to piggyback on the point that you made. Um, I have some experience, I've had actually a few years of experience in Israel advocacy, and particularly on campus. And the one thing that I've found, uh, I'm not Jewish by the way, my wife is. Uh, I've been very involved in Israel advocacy. The, fa- the, the one thing that I found the most uh, difficult for me to handle, especially as a non-Jew, was basically a number of Jewish organizations competing against each other on campus and not working together. When, I mean, sometimes right. they compete, but they at least don't work it together. It's always been so disheartening because I know that if they did work together, be much they together. could have won this battle a long time ago. Big time. So that's the no point. Thank you. All
1: right. Okay. Yes. No, no. So the, the biggest challenge I have is reading my handwriting after I, I um, write down the questions. I used to be able to remember up to eight, but there's more than that. No, I don't have anything to say. <laughs> okay. Um, one of the things that's wrong is we take Israel for granted. We believe Israel is going to be there. Instead, every morning we should wake up and say, is Israel still there? Look what's a raid against Israel. Iran, Turkey, Hezbollah, Hamas, the so many enemies, terrorist organizations, ISIS, Al-Qaeda. And we take it for granted. We believe it's always going to be there. Well, if you take it for granted, it's not going to be there. Thank God the Israelis don't take it for granted. We are not equal partners with the citizens of Israel. We're at best interested shareholders. When we go there and our children fight in the army and we pay 50% of our income for taxes and we live day-to-day life there, and it's not a bad life anymore. I remember the days we used to send coffee and toilet paper and stuff to to relatives in Israel. But we're not equal with them. And we can't expect them to understand us if we don't reach out. And when you go to Israel, go visit people. Go to their homes. Talk to them about it what Jewish life in the diaspora. We're bringing more and more Knesset members and others here. I'm not sure what the net outcome is. I think that they are more sympathetic, but the bottom line is they're gonna vote their constituencies, just like every American congressman can visit everywhere, but he's gonna vote what his constituents and protect his political uh, future. So the bottom line is we gotta make Israel into the interest of the members of Congress and the Senate and others. We have to show why it's in the interest of the American people. And a number of the questions related to Israel's image, so I'll just make a general comment. You know, everybody says Israel's Hasbara is terrible. It is not terrible. It's fighting overwhelming odds. You cannot get a fair break in most of the American media today, just as you couldn't for many years in the European media, no matter what the story is. You know, they tell the, the story that a, a young Israeli saw a girl, was walking the streets of Paris and saw a girl being attacked by a dog. And she, he ran over and he killed the dog and saved the girl's life. And the reporters came, came came down on him and said, Oh, tomorrow's headlines will read, Frenchman saves life of girl. And he said, Well, I'm not a Frenchman. He said, Oh, okay. European saves the life of girl. He said, Well, I'm not European. Okay, I say, okay, Christian saves the life. He said, Well, I'm not, I'm not a Christian. He said, Well, what are you? He said, Israeli. He said, Oh, tomorrow's thing is Israeli kills girl's dog. So we do not get a fair shake. And I'm telling you, I meet with the heads and the publishers. You can hardly make a dent in much of the media. And you can criticize right and left and the media. I do a radio show that's on 440 stations in the United States every week, twice a week, the John Bachelor Show, for those who want to listen online. On Thursday nights, I do an hour and a half, and I bring on guests from Israel from everywhere. On Monday nights, I do a half an hour just myself with him. And the second half is just about discoveries, archaeological discoveries. Millions of people listen. 6.5 million podcasts downloaded every month from his show. So the American people are hungry for information. They want to be with us, but you've got to make the case to them. And so many write and say, how come we don't hear this elsewhere? So the answer is that we have to be more proactive. We have to do more on the internet. We have to break through in social media. We have to go to where young people are. And that's why we started a program after we did that intensive study and asked who influences these constituencies, Jews and non-Jews. And by the way, the answer was similar in both groups. The answer was football players, baseball players, movie stars, they listen, they go to their Facebook pages, their Twitter, their, all those accounts. So we send every year two, three tips of NFL players and we say no conditions, you can do whatever you want. And every one of them comes back and they write to nine million, six million, eight million young people many of the minority, and say, guys, you got it all wrong. I met with one of the star players on this last night in Israel, and I said to him, what, what, what he said, I have a lot of questions. I said, you should, because if you didn't, then you didn't understand Israel. Of course you should have questions. He didn't think he had questions before. And, he, and, you know, these football players are very intelligent. They have to memorize books and stuff. I didn't think so, but I'm telling you, I was overwhelmed by them. And he said, the one impression he goes away with is this ain't no apartheid state. I said, bingo, the trip was worth it, and that he came back and went on television and said, guys, you got it all wrong. This country isn't what you think it is, and when the stars of Avatar and Twilight and all those that appeal to young people come back, we sent the stars of the telenovelas. Everybody here knows what telenovelas are? They're the Spanish soap operas. I did not know, and they speak to 100 million people a day. And When all the Spanish, us, weekly, everything had